0: netcasts you love
1: from people you trust
0: this is Tweet. audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new winamp for android featuring wireless sync and one-click itunes import now with free daily music downloads and full-length cd listening parties download it for free at winamp.com android Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, Episode 324, recorded October 26, 2011. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 129. Security Now is brought to you by... Ford, featuring Wi-Fi connectivity with available sync and my Ford Touch. Now your car could be a Wi-Fi hotspot. Check it out in the new 2012 Ford Focus and at Ford.com technology. And by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies on your PC, Mac, iPad, iPhone, or TV instantly. All streamed directly to you, saving you time, money, and hassle. For your free 30-day trial, go to netflix.com slash twit. And by Express, Being in IT and not using the right tools can be disastrous. That's why you need GoToAssist, the leader in remote support. Try it free. Visit go to slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects you and your loved ones on the internet. And that's why I'm dressed like the uh, chief of the Chicopee Police. <laughs> Here he is, our real security guru. Don't trust me to protect you, Mr. Steve Gibson of GRC.com, the Gibson Research Corporation. Hi,
1: Steve. Hello, Leo. Great to be with you again, as always, for. Our 324th episode Holy of Security Now. Holy wow. wow. Yeah. So uh, today is a Q&A, uh, uh, 129th Q&A. Yes, it is. And I have to say I, I tried not to make it all about the need to change passwords because running through the mailbag, 95% of our listeners huh. – All wanted to weigh in on their feelings and opinions and so forth about changing passwords. So it was difficult not to do an entire Q and A about it. I did refresh my memory.
0: Why is it that they're? Did we talk about that?
1: Yeah, I was. I I argued that that I, I I was grumbling about how dumb it was that corporations often required their employees to periodically change their passwords for no apparent good reason. And about how I related, as I had a couple times before, overhearing some executives in a coffee shop one morning grumbling about this and how their system wouldn't let them use any of the last four they had previously used. So whenever this was required, they would successively change their password four times in a row. Oh, I remember that, yeah. To get back to the original one yeah so anyway there uh, as always, our listeners are on the ball and brought up some interesting points one one um uh went through what some of the legal requirements are exactly which I think is interesting, and a couple of other people did bring up some interesting points so so um there was that and a couple more questions about battery care, which has been you know when I mentioned it a few oh, weeks I ago loved oh, that. My, yeah. yeah yeah, it's been a huge uh uh, focus of interest. And there was uh, actually when Tom and I were doing the Q&A two weeks ago, he skipped a question which I had that I thought, ooh, well, we'll, we'll, we'll take care of that in two weeks. And so we've got one which re- which references a site, batteryuniversity.com ah. that I sort of wanted to leave everyone with because it's the, the ultimate reference for this kind of battery treatment stuff. So anyway, we've got uh, not too much news actually this week, um, but uh, the Q and A episode that I think everyone's going to find interesting. As always, plenty to talk yeah. about, and we will get to
0: that in a second. Let me talk a little bit. I was uh, the Citrix folks were up here yesterday, showing me uh, some new stuff that they're doing with GoTo Assist. I'm so excited! I can't talk about it yet, <laughs> as usual. Um, but uh, I just I have to say this is a great time to be a GoTo Assist customer. Let me tell you who, first of all, would be interested in this. Anybody who does support. Uh, and wants to do it remotely. Now, it you know, if you're supporting uh, your family in the house, you don't need go to assist. But if you're supporting your cousin uh, Elmer uh, in Burbank and and uh, your sister Joanne in Newburgh, and mom who lives in Fresno, then you might need a remote access package. If you're in the IT business and you have clients spread out uh, in geographically, you definitely want go to assist. Remote access means you can fix the problem Remotely, I mean that's fantastic. That's, a, I mean, this is your dream come true. And frankly, it's not you're your, just your dream come true. It's your client's dream come true. Clients and IT professionals want the same thing; they both want it done fast. They want it done right, and that's what GoToAssist lets you do. And let me tell you, you know this as an IT professional: the right tool makes all the difference. Um, if if you were a surgeon, you wouldn't use a hammer to fix a gallbladder. You gotta have the right tool uh, and this is the right tool this is the surgical equivalent of the most beautiful precision tool ever go to assist express by citrix uh it's fast that's important it's cross-platform which i think you know is really nice windows and mac um it's the easiest way to view and fix a computer remotely you can have eight sessions at once which i think is very important because as you know when you start a, a scan or install or whatever you're stuck you don't have to just sit at the screen you can go to the next one, the next one, the next one. That's one of the reasons you can be so much more efficient with this tool. Um, it just I just love it. You, it. And by the way, it is very simple for your clients. I think that's important. You don't want to have to spend an energy supporting the support tool before you actually fix the problem. You won't. You send them a link. They click the link. They click allow because it's Java, and it's done, and it's running, and it's beautiful, and they can just walk away. In fact, they have unattended support, so they don't even need to be there. Would you try this for me? 30 days free. That's all I ask. Cost you nothing. Visit the website, gotoassist.com slash security now, and try it for 30 days free. You probably have a tool you use already. I know there are a lot of ones out there, and some of you are using those free tools. Well, this is free for 30 days. Just see the difference. I think that's the important thing. Just see the difference. Go to assist.com slash security now. We love Citrix. Can't wait to show you the next thing. From GoToAssist Express. But you'll get it automatically if you're a Go to Assist customer. That's the beauty of GoToAssist. GoToAssist.com slash security now.
1: All right, Steve, let's get the news out of the way. And I've got your questions. So I'm staring at them. Cool. Well, as I said, not too much happened in the week that our listeners have been on their own away from the podcast. Brian Krebs, our intrepid Security researcher who blogs often and is really focused on security stuff did post a very interesting list for the first time ever under the topic "Who else was hit by the RSA attackers?" We'll remember that RSA, of course, was famously breached in what they called an um, an, an assistant a. Um, I just the acronym just dropped. I'd lost the acronym. A Advanced Persistent Threat, APT, Advanced Persistent Threat. I don't know how you've forgotten that. (laughs) (laughs) Where they they um, discovered that over the course of some length of time, bad guys were in and operating within their network. Now, whose network? RSA's (laughs) network? within RSAs yes inside of RSAs you know oh, private network this gets worse and worse well in following down doing all the forensic analysis the a large network of command and control servers were located more than 300 of them oh boy. the majority being in the neighborhood of Beijing China uh-huh. is this like then, botnets or well these are I mean this the, this attack was very sophisticated so that so that the some some so these are command and control servers these are not attacking systems these were systems present to interact with the malware which had infiltrated or been infiltrated into RSA well, they had 300 so, of them 3 yes that gives three, you some idea of the scale of this yes So once they had those, they began looking at the traffic that was heading toward them. And then here's the punchline. More than 760 other organizations have or have had networks that were phoning home to the same set of command and control servers. Wow. Brian posts the list. There are 20% of the U.S. Fortune 100 companies on the list. (laughs) Oh, boy. And he says, among the more interesting names on the list are Abbott Labs, the Alabama Supercomputer Network, Charles Schwab and Company, Cisco Systems, eBay, the the European Space Agency, Facebook, Freddie Mac, Google, the GSA, the General Services Administration, the Inter-American Development Bank, IBM, Intel, the IRS, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Motorola, Northrop, Grumman, Novell, Perot Systems, Waterhouse, Coopers, oh research, research in Motion, Seagate Technology, Thompson Financial, Unisys, USAA, VeriSign, VMware, Wachovia, and Wells Fargo and Company.
0: Well, I mean, forget the rest. I mean, that's enough. They probably could put together a pretty good uh, attack. Holy cow! Yep.
1: yep. Now there were there were some AV companies there, but no. it was presumed that they had deliberately set up boxes oh. which were infected. Honey, honey pots. Honey pots. Exactly. So they were they were watching this, and it was it was by analyzing the operation of these. Of this malware that they were able to develop this this list of command and control servers and a distressing number and and demographic of companies are connected to this or have been traffic yep. has been seen co- going to in the, to the vicinity largely of Beijing china Jeez. from these companies
0: does that mean that it that it came that it, that china it was
1: a chinese attack? Or could it be, I mean, Um, how conclusive is it? It really doesn't. It It doesn't. It really doesn't. We, I'm, I'm, our listeners know, I'm very careful about attribution. And attribution, of course, is the big problem with internet-based attacks of various sorts. You just, you just don't know who's behind these things. And so it could easily be that, that this for whatever reason, these group of Chinese machines were infiltrated and command and control servers were set up in them, much as any bot network is essentially a a, a set of machines controlled by a third party. In fact,
0: that would be a prudent way to do it, and that's how traditionally hackers do do it.
1: Correct. Yeah. But I bet it's China. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, yeah. And, you know, there's, there's lots of mumbling about... Um, cybersecurity and and state based attacks. You know, we now believe that the U.S., for example, was involved in the development of Stuxnet, which was responsible for for slowing down the nuclear enrichment program in Iran. So it it does seem that that the internet is becoming, I mean, a true attack platform. Which brings me really to my second topic, which is I'm seeing. Increasing discussion, and this is not like a a news bullet point, but just sort of I wanted to share with our listeners that I'm seeing dialogue about the notion of two internets, which is, you know, it's that's a concept that's been around for a while. The idea that we just we somehow can't secure the Internet that we have. And so there's a there's a desire on various parties, parts to to somehow come up with a second one. Um, An IBM spokesman was talking recently to a group about the concept of of leaving our existing internet alone, but then creating a deliberately non-anonymous internet, which would be one of the things they were promoting, that where... We, where it wouldn't be like the one we have now, where you it's just this you know global open, free network that anybody can connect to and get on and do things with anonymously you know it's it's more or less anonymous. we talk a lot about tracking and passwords of course, and all that, which are are I, deliberately identifying activities but but they would be talking about or the f b i is beginning to talk about. The fact that we just can't make what we have secure. And this
0: is Isn't becoming- that kind of throwing the baby out with the bath. Well, we can't make it secure. Let's just start over.
1: I, I know uh, Microsoft, the Microsoft spokesman at a recent conference was saying the same thing. He was talking about a red and a green Internet. Oh, boy. Um, he said the red Internet would be exactly what we have now. But the green Internet would be much more restrictive difficult to break into, and, and, and fundamentally have technology that made it easier to track down miscreants who were, who were doing things. So he wasn't making the mistake of saying it would be impervious because, you know, we know that's not possible. But, you know, as I have spoken about, the underlying technology of the net is such that it was, it was never designed with security in mind. As, you know, we when we were starting our our, our series as, as that we're in now on how the internet works, you know, the basic underlying nuts and bolts, the idea that you can just drop any packet into the internet anywhere with an IP address, and it's the goal of the internet and the internet's routers to send it to its destination, not caring where it's from, what it contains, you know, anything about it. It's just sends it i mean that's that's architecturally beautiful but it is absolutely says nothing about security and thus we're we're having problems so no, i mean it's. i just, think
0: it'd be a fun show at some point to, th- to think about how would you design such an internet how
1: would you make a green internet what would you do differently right Right. And it's, again, it's not like we could do a perfect job. I mean, we, we, we can't do even bits of it perfectly. We can't, you know, here's RSA, arguably a super secure security organization who's massively penetrated over the course of, it's now believed, many months. Well, see, so that's kind of my the reaction I have to this idea of let's have a second internet is... Well, I know.
0: Why don't we just make the first internet secure? Uh, I mean, what is it that we're doing? What is it we would do on a second internet? We'd do authentication. We'd require packets to be authenticated. We'd use SSL.
1: I mean, can't we do those things on the existing infrastructure? Why do we have to have well, a and, one? And, yes, and another example is, and there is a question about this that we'll be getting to in, in this podcast, but even... SSL. Here we have SSL, and it's basically it's kind of strong, too. Yeah. except that then we go, oh, wait a minute, there's a, re- there's a problem with renegotiating sessions that we wish we didn't have anymore. Uh, and with and
0: CAs with, that have been compromised.
1: It, it, precisely the fundamental idea of, of having, a, having certificates that we trust, well, if we can't trust the people who issue them, then we, you know that doesn't work. So yeah, problems.
0: It's, it's an you know I they've been talking about a second internet for a long time. You know, for a while it was we, we want a fast internet just for us. That was one right. thing, uh, right. and now it's a secure internet. I think the Internet Two Coalition down at Stanford was working on this. I was just
1: gonna say yes. Educational institutions have right. talked about wanting their own set like separate platform. Because <laughs> there's there's too many can- unwashed masses on my internet get off of my internet. I just
0: yes. I I I think let's fix. I bet we could fix the one we have instead of throwing it out. That just seems
1: to me. But it would be a well, fun
0: exercise, wouldn't
1: it, to... To uh, fix... Okay, if we, if we if we started like where I was just saying, like this problem of autonomous packet routing, if we were to say that, for example, in order to avoid denial-of-service attacks of the bandwidth flooding kind, they are all about concentrating... Traffic from many senders to a single recipient. And there are many problems with blocking that. And that is, for example, way out on the fringes, before the traffic starts to concentrate, we have routers which are, are without knowing it, they are passing invalid traffic. So what that says is we have to rethink everything. We can't, like, we can't just put a better SSL, you know, TLS 1.3 on top of what we already have now because that wouldn't solve any denial of service problems. So the idea would be some sort of authentication mechanism before you were even able to put traffic. I mean, I was going to say connect, but a connection is a higher level abstraction of placing a packet on the internet. So you, you would have to have some th- sort of authentication mechanism that permitted you to inject a packet uh, into some next generation network, which means nothing we have done could we keep. I mean, wow. if that was the requirement, we, it's starting from scratch, not a piece of the hardware that we have Mm. would would work in in that kind of scenario wow so so anyway yes you're right leo it's been talked about a lot and i just i just saw two pieces of news this week these two different people one guy with the fbi one guy with microsoft seriously addressing large audiences and saying maybe we need another internet you know no don't no worry we're not taking this one away but yeah. and also you know, maybe I'm paranoid but I also feel like what they're saying is maybe we need another internet that we can control a little bit better uh, Exactly well yeah. control would be part of it somehow right. I mean it, well, to who, be secure who, who are, you got to yes, let us auth-
0: control it. Yes who
1: who provides the authentication that allows us to inject packets on the net So anyway we got a problem yeah. and uh I just think we'll live with it. I think we're going to limp along uh, it, the it is We've the investment is too great. And Leo, it's not even clear to me that such a restrictive Internet would have ever functioned. Right. Right. Had we started at the beginning, then could it have gone global? One of the reasons it was so successful is that it was open, is that it anybody could use it, that people could look at Web pages and say, oh, that's how we made that effect work. You know, I mean. It, it, it was it was it was the organicness it, it's, of it's, it. It's
0: about open. I think open is very is very key. And isn't a VPN, in a sense, a secure network over the existing infrastructure? I mean, why don't we do that? Why why create a second internet? I even on the face of it, it sounds nutty.
1: Yeah. What about I know. what
0: about you know
1: encryption? What
0: about tunneling?
1: Yeah, and all of those work kinda. Oh, you know a VPN kind of works ssl kind of works tunneling kind of works i mean when we had when we're finding little mistakes that we've made in our fundamental protocols then that sort of argues that we're we're not capable of building yeah. a secure we- something this <laughs> big and secure it's, as we want it to it's, be remember when microsoft said we're going to write a completely new
0: stack for windows was it vista or 7 and you just said well that's crazy because we know the old, We know all the flaws in the old stack. We patched them. We worked on them. Inevitably, you write a whole new TCP IP stack. You're going to introduce a whole new unknown bunch of
1: bugs. Well, and it's the classic expression of those who forget history are right. doomed to repeat it. Right. Um, that, remember that I made that comment because an old, old bug that had been right. stomped on back in the Unix era right. came resurfaced. Yes. It came back because they said, oh, yeah, well, we've, you know whoops, new code, same problems. And I, I think that's the fallacy of, oh, well, let's start
0: over again. We now understand it. We could right. we could it, do it right this time. Now
1: we know how now to do it. we got it. Speaking of starting over, um, Symantec and McAfee have both found and been analyzing instances of a Stuxnet variant. Uh-oh. I was talking about Stuxnet a, a few minutes ago uh, relative to the... Iranian uh, nuclear enrichment program. This one is called DUQU, D-U-Q-U, um, so named because it tends to put a DQ on the front of the various file components that it uses. Portions of it are identical to Stuxnet. Um, it seems to be targeting industrial control firms. No one's quite sure – what's going on with it yet, where it came from, and so forth. And it does remove itself from infected systems after 36 days. So well, a bunch of people... Why would it do that? Uh, well, probably because it doesn't want to be found. Job done. In the long- yeah, in the, exactly. It's either going to get its job done within that window or... Well, that's what Stuxnet did. That's right. To- yeah, yeah. Stuxnet yeah. did
0: that. Yeah. yeah.
1: So anyway, a, a bunch of people tweeted. I just wanted to acknowledge that I'd seen there really isn't much more news on it yet maybe as we as it's if it's found somewhere really important or doing something really bad or they understand more about it but you know this also this was expected this stuxnet stunned researchers by its level of sophistication and how many different parts there were of it which was necessary to get it to do its job, which is really the reason that people were feeling, wow, you know, this feels like it's a state-sponsored piece of work. Like, you know, this is not script kiddies. This is not amateurs. This is, you know, serious heavyweight people. So um, I thought that was interesting. And then the other, right behind people talking about passwords in the mailbag, was people telling me about the Spanning Tree Protocol, which... I had implemented once upon a time, so I I do know about it. This this relates to the question. I think it was two weeks ago, where um, a listener was experiencing a switch that was bring being brought down to its knees because essentially a cable was plugged back into the switch, which created a broadcast storm. And I, I made the comment that I wasn't aware of any anyone who specified whether switches did that or not, that has prevented it. Um, Well, of course, spanning tree protocol is exactly for that purpose, except that what I meant to say was that as far as I know, none of these little $10 blue box switches, which which is the level of technology I was referring to, implement anything as sophisticated as spanning tree protocol. Spanning tree protocol, STP, was developed by a um a well-known researcher at DEC who's now at Sun and and it is specifically to allow complex topology ethernet networks which can be interconnected not just in a in like in a in a simple tree where by by definition of a tree you would never have anything Never you'd have you would never have more than one link between any two nodes, which prevents the kind of of network loops and broadcast storms that I was explaining in that in answering that that question um, and it uses its own protocol, a very sophisticated um, network probing protocol to to find best paths through the network. And to even support the concept of deliberately establishing multiple links between switches. Or, for example, you might build an Ethernet topology deliberately in a ring so that if a link went down between a couple switches, there would be deliberately an alternate path the other way around the ring to get to those switches anyway so that's what spanning tree protocol is i i do understand about it but it's a sort of at a level way beyond the 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 brain dead switch which i was describing um as i was answering the the q and a but i did want to let our listeners know that i i saw other feedback and thank them for it good and speaking of feedback I found a – actually, this was a little bit older. This was a Locker Gnome blog posting from Mark Erickson, who, who apparently he posted to the Locker Gnome blog. Uh, he said another SpinWrite success story. And he said, I've been using SpinWrite for about six months now. The first time I tried it was on a customer's computer that wouldn't boot into Windows XP. I thought, well, I'll try this software first. And – if it works, I'll save the customer the cost of backing up their data, reinstalling Windows and all their other software. And it did. Then, earlier this week, it happened to me. I got the BSOD, the famous blue screen of death, inaccessible boot device. Ugh, I, that's what I hate. That's not good. Error, you know. And he said, when I ran the Windows CD to do a repair install, it did not see any Windows installation present at all. I ran Spinrite in Mode 2, Data Recovery, and after it finished, rebooted. Voila, Windows was back. By the way, Steve Gibson and or GRC.com haven't paid me anything for this. <laughs> this is, block. I okay. am a, an actor with a paid testimonial. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just happy to promote a product that has saved me time and money and may help someone else also. Awesome. So he was just spreading the word. And so, Mark, if by any chance you hear this, thank you for letting people know. I awesome. appreciate it.
0: Awesome. See, we have, a, I have, I have in my hands, in the words of Joe McCarthy. <laughs> 12 great questions or something like that ready for you. And uh, we're going to get to those in just a second before we do. Can I mention our friends at Ford? Absolutely. We're doing a barbecue uh, November 13th and then a following, uh, we'll do another one in December sometime. I think probably December. Uh, well, it won't be the 13th uh, because we're doing Twit in Paris. So it'll be sometime shortly after that. Uh, what? Oh, yeah, we're going to be in Paris. <laughs> did I tell you? <laughs> uh, you know, the little web conference, you know, about we did, we did, we did it a little bit last year. Um, uh, and Louis Lemur, who puts this on, it's a uh, an entrepreneurial conference for where American entrepreneurs come to Paris to uh, meet with and uh, talk about uh, startups with uh, European entrepreneurs. The European mm-hmm. climate is very different. Uh, yep, from uh, the Especially American. Now. There's not a lot of money. I mean, it's just it's yeah. very, and there's of course it's fragmented because they speak all these different languages. But it's a it's a great conference. And uh, I went last year, uh, did a panel there. We streamed that. But this year we're going to actually have a whole booth sponsored by IBM. And we're going to be set up in uh, Paris backstage. And as people come off the stage, we will interview them and some wonderful people. So, that's yeah, that's going to be fun. That Twit in Paris, we're calling that. And that'll be uh, uh, December, uh, I think, 5th, 6th, 7th, something like that, or 6th, 7th, 8th. Okay. Anyway, uh, we'll let you we'll let you know at a time. Uh, I don't. I guess we'll do security now before we. I don't know. We'll figure that out. Maybe yeah. maybe Tom will do it. Whatever. He's staying here. It's going to be Sarah Lane oh. and me in Paris. Um, I'm taking her because she goes anyway for the web. However, that's not what I'm here to talk about. <laughs> ah,
1: <okay. laughs> now that we've got
0: that all covered. of that is irrelevant. It's just to, to the point of uh, when we're going to have our. December picnic where Ford has asked us and I'm really thrilled to do this. First of all, we're thrilled to have them as a sponsor, but they've asked us to throw these uh, barbecues out front. We're going we've got a permit from the Petaluma police. We're going to take over the street, have a tent, have a barbecue, have great food. It'll be on a Sunday so you can watch twit, the new gaming show. Um, and we're going to have a bunch of the newest 2012 Ford vehicles there for you to take a look at. But if you can't make it to our barbecue, you can always go to your Ford dealer or go to this website, Ford.com slash technology. Um, you know, one of the reasons they advertise on, on, on this show is because they know people who uh, watch Twit and watch Steve are geeks and we're really inter- interested in technology. And they are geeks, too. I mean, this is the thing I really got from talking uh, quite a few times to Alan Mulally, their CEO there. He's a geek. He worked at Boeing for many years as an engineer, designed the 777 cockpit. And, And when he came to Ford, he really reinvented the company, not only improving the quality, the fit, and the finish, making cars that were every bit as good as cars made anywhere else in the world. I mean, better, really beautifully made cars. But he also had this idea... And I think this comes from designing Boeing airplane cockpits that the, the car should not suddenly you shouldn't be going back to the to the 20th century in this car. You want to bring bring your technology with you. So they've done so much in these cars, not just, of course, you know, electric vehicles, hybrids, uh, new motors that are powerful yet fuel efficient, but also kind of almost consumer electronics in the car. Things like now there are Wi-Fi hotspots the new 2012 Ford Focus is the first of these. It has a USB port you plug in your 3G card, the whole car lights up and everybody in the car can use the Wi-Fi. By the way, Steve, you'll be glad to know WPA2 security built in. Yay. Yay. They did it. Well, you know, if you're driving down the road, you you don't want the guy in the Chevy no. on the next no. lane using your Wi-Fi. That wouldn't be right. So, get your own Wi-Fi. Get your own Ford. Uh, what else? Oh, I mean, just the the you know it's little things. Like it's funny. I, I talk about this and people just say what? But when you have it, it's great. The the capless fuel filter. You don't have a cap. You just open it up. You put the nozzle in. I mean, it's it's. But I have it on my Mustang. You might mock me. You might laugh. But no, it's fantastic. How about this? There is now with the My Ford Touch, they have all these things for teenage drivers. The My Key technology. They monitor your uh, teenager's speed. There's a maximum speed in the car, you can't go faster than that. The fuel light, this is good, comes on at 75 miles instead of 50 miles left. Cuz you know, kids, <laughs> they will drive it to like the end. Um, there's just so much I it, it, this is what happens when you start thinking about a car in a new way. Airbags in the seatbelts for the rear. I mean, this is just, it's safe, it's secure, it's fun to drive, and you got to love the sync with my Ford Touch that gives you Wi-Fi in the car now and the ability to talk to your car, just like Siri. It is fantastic. Give it a try at your Ford dealer or Ford.com technology. All right, Steve, I'm set up here. I got my questions. I'm ready to puzzle you with a few of them. Are you ready to answer them?
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Great feedback from our listeners. We love our listeners.
0: I tell you, every, er, I, I love coming in to work. We're putting in the new bricks and all the great messages. People come to visit from all over. We've got visitors from Oklahoma City in the studio today. It's just really, it's like you're working with buddies every day. Not just you and all the other hosts, but, the, but our audience. Anyway, here we go. Twelve questions, good and true. As they say, James Russell starts us off from Australia. He says, "How do programs know when the correct password was entered? Well, that's an interesting question. yeah, how do utilities like uh truecrypt disk utility uh seven zip know when the users entered the correct password, the decryption algorithm will run regardless of whether the password is correct, won't it?" I assume it'll just produce pseudo-random noise for incorrect passwords. Or do these programs append some kind of identifying token to the data before encrypting it, check for the identifier after decrypting it, or would that weaken security somehow? Thanks, Steve. Love the show. James, this is a fundamental question.
1: How does, how do it work, Steve? Yeah, it is. It's a good question because, I mean, if the, if the security program were to perform any kind of a test, against the password like you know is it right or not checking it against the right password well i mean that'd be crazy because it would be super simple to simply reverse engineer the operation of the code st- step through where it's checking the password to see if what you entered matches what it's expecting and then proceed if it were to match you know that you just you, you couldn't work that way right so um so it's it is as James suggests the the system runs the decryption algorithm under and that is to say using the key that the user has provided and generally what will happen is there'll be a a header that's that the um that the that the system has put onto the front of a file which is of a known format it'll be a known layout it'll it may have like a like a, a version number of the of the protocol or the encryption system may have some like identifying information about the program and so forth so that stuff it knows the proper format for and so only the use of the proper key would decrypt the encrypted header into the proper format that the program would then look at. So it looking to see whether the, whether the decryption was performed correctly in no way weakens the system. Because it doesn't matter if someone were to, to reverse engineer that and see that, oh, look, it's checking to see whether this random noise equals the name of the security program, for example... I mean, it's like, okay, that still tells the attacker nothing about what key needs to be used in order to decrypt what's encrypted into something that it can see the program is looking for. So, yes, essentially, it just uses whatever it's given. And then, you know, it's not going to give you the file and say, here you go. It's going to tell you that, whoops, that's not the right key. But the way it tells you... Is by checking something whose format it knows, which was part of that encryption, and verify that it, that part was properly decrypted. So, great question. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That's <laughs> the
0: way you do it. Yeah. Francois Lagrange in Brussels, Belgium, Bruxelles, offers some reasons to force periodic password changes. Ah, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Get ready. Steve. I'm a security architect in a large bank, and I work daily with people managing security devices. So this is the guy who makes you change it. While mandating to change user passwords is a needless annoyance indeed, there definitely are reasons to do so in some cases. Passwords for security equipment must be changed regularly, say every six months in the enterprise. Think about it. Engineers sharing passwords, writing them in notepad files on Post-its, I've seen passwords of equipment written on a piece of paper. <laughs> I have two. Uh, next to the equipment itself, of course. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the Post-it note, right? Um, shared by to colleagues by telling them almost out loud? Right. Or even think about the many engineers that occasionally have to look up passwords while the project manager is standing right behind them. I know, I know, there are ways around all this still changing passwords from time to time just ensures the list of those knowing them is just reset from time to time to those that really need to know it makes sense people leave stuff like that thank you yes, for everything
1: i, I completely point. agree yeah. so that's different than the model that i was discussing where it's you know you have a one on one one to one relationship with an entity that that you, uh, where you're not disclosing your password for any other purpose and and it's it's within your it, it's it's within your self-interest to protect the password yourself what 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 Francois suggests is a certainly a a, a valid and different scenario but I like what he said at the end there best he said because changing the passwords from time to time resets the list of people who know it. And so so this is definitely a valid use case where, where you sort of have more of a community of people who collectively know, who share the knowledge of a password, and... It's like, uh, you know, if they're shouting it from office to office or ha- writing it down and handing it to a friend because, oh, he needs to be able to have access to it. You know, that's that's a, a a different model. And so there I absolutely agree that that it would clearly make sense to change the password just to prov- I, I would guess I guess I would call it diffusion there. There's there would just be sort of diffusion of the knowledge of the password over time it would just sort of diffuse into the environment and so definitely change it and and, and as exactly as he as the way he phrases it 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 resets the list of those who really do need to know it and and so yes i thought that was a really good point fair enough um
0: question three zach in madison wisconsin he shares his discovery of a slick Kindle utility. Steve, not related to the show, but I know you own several Kindles. so I thought As I'd pass, does Leo. As do I. I think I own them all. Yep. I thought I'd pass along this tool I just found out that has uh, greatly improved my PDF reading experience. Well, I'm reading a PDF right now. Let me, help me, help me. Normally I shy away from reading PDFs on the Kindle since the text is so small and zooming in or rotating the screen is just annoying to me. So... There's this program, K2PDFopt. It's a small EXE from willus.com, W-I-L-L-U-S.com. You simply drag a PDF onto it, and it will optimize for Kindle reading. Oh, That's though you could, nice. Yeah, though you could tweak many of the settings. I find the defaults work great. Take a look, share it with your listeners if you like. It is, and I like this, uh, although it, he did say it's an EXE, it is Windows, Mac, and Linux, or versions exist for all of them.
1: Yes, he did talk about an exi. I went to the site and looked at it, and um, w- the problem with a PDF that we've t- talked about in the past. Well, there've been many problems from a security standpoint, but from a reading standpoint, is PDFs are inherently page based. Yeah, They're you know, it's a you're formatting a page to be a certain size, and if you put it on your Kindle, well, it's going to squeeze it down. To be the size of the screen, what this utility does is it breaks that to, uh, in your benefit. That is, it says, "Wait a minute, you know, hold on, hold on. Let's reformat this. We're gonna we're gonna make this content readable. Figure out about columns. Figure out about about sizes. And just, I mean, it, it completely re renders the PDF um, in a fashion that allows you to get the content out of it at the expense. Of the page layout, but there are many instances where that's a, a good thing. That, that's something that you want. And I did verify that he's got it for Windows, Mac, and Linux. I'm downloading Mac- the Mac version right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and and, he, 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 and you can see on that on that website it's www.willus.com. and even on that homepage, he does refer to this K2 PDF OPT program. And you can see some before and after pictures of here's what the PDF page looked like first. Right. Here's what I did do it. And clearly makes it much more legible for, for small screen readers. It even, even shows it for a smartphone. So like a really small screen. Really cool. What a great yeah. idea. Yeah. So thank you, Zach.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Zach. Uh, moving along. And I'm downloading it right now. You know, and then what you do is you just email it to your Kindle. You don't, you know, you have the PDF right. and then you email it. And I think they charge you with a dime for that. Um, yeah. But that, but that's the problem it's, uh,
1: is that, or I guess you could hook it up via USB. I have never done that with any Kindle. I have actually. It works great. Yeah, There's saves a wonderful documents and you just drop Perfect. all of your files there. Oh. And then when you, when, you un, when you disconnect the Kindle, it does an inventory and discovers new things there and adds them to its homepage. I shouldn't be so lazy. I just mail it.
0: Yeah. An anonymous listener wanted to weigh in on lithium-ion battery care. You talked about that a couple of weeks ago. He says, Steve, you mentioned that lithium-ion batteries want to stay charged to get the maximum lifetime. So you see, I when I get to work, I plug in my phone Yay. so that it's, uh, you know, it's, even though I may not need it, it's always charging, right? Um, according to batteryuniversity.com, which is cited on the Wikipedia page for lithium-ion, That's not completely accurate. According to Battery University, if you continuously keep lithium-ion batteries fully charged at 100% permanent capacity, the loss is greater than if you keep the lithium-ion battery at half charge. Oh, yeah, but how are you going to do that? (laughs) Uh Take a look at Table 3. Permanent capacity loss of lithium-ion as a function of temperature and charge level. If you keep the battery 100% charged all the time at 25 degrees Celsius, you'll lose 20% of the capacity in about a year. However, if you let the battery discharge and leave it about 40% most of the time, you should only lose 4% capacity. It is correct that you shouldn't run lithium-ion batteries down to zero, but also you shouldn't repeatedly keep charging it, which will keep the battery near 100% and then,
1: of course, reduce the lifespan of your battery. Well, our listener is close to correct. And this is sort of the last bit of of lithium ion battery handling care that I wanted to share with our listeners. What the, the where he's wrong is that this is specifically and only true for storage. So Leo, for example, all of those old palm uh, pilots, uh, so you should charge have- discharge them to half and then yes. put it in the fridge. Yes, exactly. I get it. So it is storage; it's long-term storage of lithium-ion batteries that you that you you do not want to store them fully charged. They don't like that either. But in your normal daily cycling, as long as you're taking them down and bringing them up, taking them down and bringing them up, you know, like like we use phones and right. and other devices and and, and laptops, um, you do want to. It's it, as I originally said, the start of this whole dialogue. Plugging it in and keeping it topped off is the right thing to do. I was just at Starbucks yesterday morning um, for a couple hours reading. And, you know, there was somebody there with his laptop sitting there working. And after some length of time, he suddenly, in a little bit of a hurry, went rummaging around in his backpack to grab his charger because clearly he would received a warning on his screen saying... Oh, your battery is almost de- depleted, you know. Turn me off or or plug me in. Well, my my point was that he should have always been plugged in. He, if if you're in a situation where you where you can be plugged in, then you absolutely always should be. If you can plug in, do plug in. Right. That's, that's exactly the, that's the that's the takeaway. Exactly. So and Leo, I'm, I'm we just in. had a power failure here. I heard the urn, uh, and you and I cruised right through it thanks to my UPS's. Oh, Nothing sweet. went down. <laughs> You're kidding? No. So it was just a brief little flick. Yep, it was off for about uh, about 15 seconds while I was talking about batteries. I heard a and little
0: buzz. I, I wow. looked around,
1: like things think lights went dim and screens are off, but the the critical systems, and which is to say, me talking to you. Just went through without batting an eye. That's wow. routers and switches and all kinds of stuff here. How just much, so, what perfectly. are you
0: running? You're running, a, obviously, a pretty hefty UPS.
1: Yeah, I've got a couple big old um, APC monsters, those love things those. that take several people to move. Yeah, yeah. love those. They're, they're old 19-inch rack mount deals. And you I, have I enough kept... for
0: all the wattage that you use? Yep. For how long?
1: Well, for you know, fifteen seconds.
0: <laughs> oh, wait a minute! Wait a minute! The blinking lights have gone off. Your PDP eight's shut down.
1: Uh, yep, they I guess sure they, did you don't keep them on a UPS? Yeah. <laughs> I did. I did deliberately decide what needs to right. survive and what doesn't. So no point in keeping those yeah. running. Well, no. well, hey, that was cool. Yeah, that's
0: really cool. Moving along to uh, question five, Tom Minick. Of Baltimore, also in Maryland. <laughs> what? Oh, also MD. I'm not sure what that means. Wonders about uh, lithium. I think, oh, wait a minute. I got it. Baltimore, Maryland, also wonders. The, the words got swapped. About yep. lithium ion versus lithium poly and the effects of deep cycling. Steve, I really love the podcast. In your Q&A, you'd mentioned it's bad to deep cycle lithium ion batteries. Are LION batteries and lithium-poly batteries the same? The reason I ask, I've been playing around with RC aircraft for a time, and they all now use lithium-polymer batteries, which by the nature of how we run these planes are being (laughs) deep-cycled. They just run it till it crashes, I guess. There are safety mechanisms in the speed controllers to prevent the batteries from being drawn down past a certain threshold, but these devices don't meet your keep-plugged-in-and-topped-off model. I I haven't had a chance to look into this. I thought you'd be interested. Regards,
1: Tom. Okay, so... Yes, lithium ion lithium polymer are identical in the way they're handled. And Tom's- what is the difference between the two? Is, it, is there different materials involved or Well, it's the same it's the same fundamental chemistry. One of the nicest things about the polymer technology is that it it they can be made in what's called prismatic shapes. And that for example is specifically what allows our iPads uh. and thin tablets and so forth. Where you're able to you're able to make a battery now. No longer does it need to be cylindrical or of of limited flexibility. You can you can really create wild shapes um, in, you, using this technology. But basically, it's the same li- it's the same lithium chemistry uh, throughout. So Tom's situation is a little bit different. Um, there he is he is really seriously using the power in in the battery. He's, you know, he's pulling a lot of amperage out of it over a short period of time, um, and there he's going to run into cycle life limitations um, where he's just, I mean, as we know, the battery technology is not perfect. When you discharge it and recharge it, not everything... Comes back exactly the way it was. So it's it's a little bit like friction inside the battery. You are there, there. There's some some fundamentally some wear and tear with the technology. So so my my comment about keeping batteries topped off was aimed mostly at at our consumer devices like Kindles and. Apple is now going in this direction in general, not having user serviceable batteries. I really, It really wouldn't even come up as an issue if you could easily right. take the battery out of your Kindle or out of your iPad and, you know, put in a new one. You can't it's take like, it well, out of the
0: Kindle anymore, can you?
1: That's right. They used to have them. You, oh, the, you, only the, yes, only the very first generation Kindle, you could open the back and exchange batteries. In fact, when I bought it, 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 I bought two
0: batteries because I thought, well, maybe I'll need another battery. I'm the the same way you are.
1: But but so 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 my point was that as I'm seeing people and it was a drained Kindle that really brought this to mind. It's like, ooh, you know, you can't change the battery in that. So, boy, you know, keeping it plugged in is the best solution. So Tom's usage case is very different because he's probably going through batteries relatively quickly, just using them up, you know, burning, essentially burning them out. Because they are just, they're so, um, they're, they're, they're giving all of their juice virtually right down near zero. And then he's charging them all the way up, way up again and, dra- and draining them all back down. You know, m- very different than a Kindle, which just sort of sips at the vapors of, right. of the battery. Interesting.
0: Yeah. So he would ha- so he'd actually be a good test case for this. If it, you know, if he does go through batteries, well, then that would, that would be why.
1: Oh yeah. And, and the hobby battery pack technology is very cool. They, you plug the battery in and it's got a fancy connector which taps every cell in the, in the battery and individually manages Hmm. the charge per cell in order to keep them balanced. And yeah, it's, you know, they've, they've done a lot in order to get maximum amount of juice you can out, out of these, these batteries of cells. Well, enough about
0: batteries. Let's get back to passwords. <laughs> Question six is Jeff Forsyth, I- which, Ips, Ipswich UK, who admonishes us not to blame the IT department. Steve, don't blame us for forcing password changes. We have an obligation to do it as part of credit card compliance rules. Blame Visa. Every, ma- every business that takes credit card payments must comply with the security rules enforced by Visa, MasterCard, and Amex. These rules are designed to reduce card fraud, but they do drive all IT departments absolutely nuts. Visa, MasterCard, and Amex formed the Payment Card Industry, PCI Security Council, a few years back at PCISecurityStandards.org, and will fine an organization up to half a million dollars mm. if it doesn't meet their rules. The rules are called the Data Security Standard and then subsequently suffer a breach. The whole world seems to be struggling to implement these IT rules, and though in general they are set up with the best intent, they do insist password changes implemented for all staff every 90 days. So the DSS says change user passwords every 90 days require a minimum password length of at least seven characters. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> How
0: about at least ten? <laughs> Use passwords containing both numeric and alphabet. At least they said at least, right? Yes. Not some bet- between seven and ten or something like that. Uh, Use passwords containing both numeric and alphabetic characters. Do not allow an individual to submit a new password that is the same as any of the last... Well, that's where this comes from. As any Uh of the last four passwords he or she has used. Limit repeated access attempts by locking out the user ID after not more than six attempts. Set the lockout duration to a minimum of 30 minutes or until administrator enables the user ID. I really hate it when they do
1: that. Uh, yeah, and they make a call. But it's, it is safer. I yeah, mean, it's, well,
0: it works. If a session has been idle for more than 15... This is to prevent brute force, obviously. Yep. If a session has been idle for more than 15 minutes, require the user to reauthenticate to reactivate the terminal or session. So this is the kind of thing that... Now, see, as a bank
1: customer, though, I don't have to change my password. So this is for staff, not for customers. Correct. And so, for example, my own organization is abiding by these rules just because I originally implemented my one-time password system. So we're never, we, we, you know, every password we use is right. different from Do you make a change password. every every 90 days, though? There's nothing to change. Every time you oh, log in. Oh, it's
0: one-time, they're one-time passwords. That's right.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so we're, you know, we're, and I do have something like a lockout and, and so forth. I mean, all of that is sort of, you know, you're, it's the, it's what somebody who was conscious of security would build from the beginning. And what I do wish, the one thing I wish that was pervasive was was locking users out after some number of guesses. Yeah. It's just it's so often the case that that the companies don't want the hassle of users saying, "Well, I you know, I tried six times because I you know, I have 12 passwords I use all the time and I couldn't remember which one of those 12 it was and now I'm locked out." You know, they just from a from a customer support standpoint no one wants to get that call so but boy that would just do such a uh, make such an improvement for security but at the at the cost of being people being hassled exactly as you said when you read that rule leo i mean yeah. you're right it, it does bite you sometimes oh
0: it drives me crazy
1: yeah keith in uh, st
0: louis missouri brings up a very good point about password changing steve listen to you and leo all the time love it Feedback regarding password-changing policy topic that keeps being brought up. I love it. This guy's saving us time by eliminating unnecessary or redundant words. Sure, this has been thought of, but you keep saying you can't find a good reason as to why users need to change their password every X months. Let's say I attack a user and get the user's password. I've got the clear text password, right? I want to keep my access, but I'm not going to do anything to let the user know I've compromised his or her account. If the user is forced to change his or her password every so number of months, I'm screwed. Of course, if I had the rights, I could create another account, put in a back door. But if those are found, I could go back to the user's account unless they're forced to change it. So isn't that a good reason why we need to force users to change passwords every so many months? I think it would make sense, you know, Yahoo Mail, uh, AOL Mail. Where users don't do a good job with their passwords and probably do get compromised, at least if you encourage them to ch- – this is Leo ad here – at least if you encourage them to change it on a regular basis, that'll protect them against that having been hacked.
1: Yeah, I, I, this to me – I mean, I see Keith's point. It's a little paternalistic. And, and, yeah, well, and to me it feels like a little bit like the user ought to have responsibility right. for yeah. recognizing whether their password – might have been compromised. For right. example, if you if you give it to someone to because you need them to log in for you or something, and then sure you could say, oh, and please never use it again. You know, but the smart user would say, okay, now I'm going to change it because I was forced to give it away and I want to re- I want to restore my privacy. So I mean I, I certainly understand what Keith is saying that You know, yeah, if a bad guy got your password and was loving, you know, on a on a persistent basis, having access to your account, then clearly changing it periodically would shake those people loose. But to me, that feels like a little bit of a stretch relative to the hassle that users would be put through. Changing all of their passwords every X months for no for no good reason. If you've got a really strong password and you're responsible with it, my sense is, eh, keep it.
0: Good, because that's what I plan to do. Yeah. <laughs> Chris Strizelchik in Michigan. Strizelchik. Str- str- you did a good job with that. That's like a good try, anyway. Strizelchik. Yeah. In Michigan, reminds us about, for all we know, he pronounces it Sharday. I don't know. Reminds us about insecure fingerprints. Steve, I'm a listener in the programming and server administration profession for many years. My brother's somewhat of a clean freak and tends to wipe his iPad screen often. Hmm. After leaving his iPad at my house one day, I observed the fingerprints left on the screen could be mapped to his unlock code. deep 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 deep. Since they were pretty much the only fingerprints on the screen, it was trivial to figure out the actual numbers. Now I just had to write them down and decode. Since my brother is not a Security Now listener, I suspect his passcode would be something he could easily remember. Probably some number that binds to some personal information. I was right. A couple of birthday combinations later, I was inside his iPad. Oh, yeah, that's right. Because it doesn't tell you what order. It just tells you what he tapped. Now on the swipe... Like on the Android phones, they have a swipe. Then you could even see the order. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to bring this to users' attention. When you have a code on your iPad, you should, well, maybe not wipe it as often so that there's lots of fingerprints or have a code that doesn't bind to any personal information. Thanks for a great show. Yeah, Gvorak, every time he gets my phone, tries to read the fingerprints to figure out what the unlock code
1: is. Ah, uh, John. He knows. So I've noticed the same thing. There's a I can't remember what it was, but when the iPad, when my iPad was new, and probably before I added the anti glare uh, film, because that really does cut down on the fingerprinting problem. Oh yeah, I there was something I was playing a, a puzzle I was solving or something where the it was inherently a grid, and I remember looking at the screen after a few days. I mean, you could really see yeah. the grid. That, that yeah. I had been been touching. Yeah. But I liked Chris's point because this has reminded me to say to our listeners something that I have been intending to for weeks. And that is I've been very happy with changing my iPad to the setting that gives you the full keyboard, not just the number mm. pad. And it's a beautiful change because... You, you can still use just a very few keys, but because you're dealing now with, with, a, with a much larger alphabet with more than 26 things, including, you know, special characters, you, you can just go tap, tap, tap and enter. And, and even in a situation where you weren't clearing your screen, um, there's, well, let's see. I guess that isn't that is not the case. You'd have more you'd have more locations if you I, well, I the issue I, I is the order.
0: Guess, so the long the number more more presses you have, more difficult it is to figure out what the order is.
1: Correct. So you could certainly use you could use more than the limited four yeah. numbers. But um my sense is if you if you were using the keyboard, you would be you those taps would be obscured among all the other uses of the keyboard and other things, you know, it's it's over much. You're spread out over a much larger surface area, and much less easy to see what it was you were typing. So, okay. anyway, at, at I think I mentioned this or someone mentioned it once before, and I ended up following up on it. That is, switching from the ten keypad to the keyboard. It is no additional work and substantially greater security because the 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 number of combinations possible on a, a keyboard. And I don't remember now how many keys there are. It's certainly A through Z, but also a, a number of special um, characters. And of course you have shift as well, if you wanted to do that. So you, you could add a couple shifts. Oh, and and that would, shifting the numbers would completely obscure the sequence because no one could tell when you had pressed the shift key or not. So right. That that would be good too, but anyway, a, a simple change to make to your iPhone or your iPad that that really does jump the security up. And the thing that that I realized was that um, I have persistent logons and sessions and you know remember me um, settings on my iPad just for convenience. And I uh, it occurred to me, well, what if someone just picked up my iPad? I mean, or if if it walked off from you know by itself at Starbucks when I wasn't looking, you know, what would that really mean? I mean, a- ask yourself the question, if somebody actually had it, what would that mean? And I thought, Oh, that would not be good. So, you know, I, I, I enabled the option of wiping it. If, uh, you know, if multiple attempts were made that were unsuccessful, wipe the memory that's now turned on as is that screen, which proposes very little usage overhead um, and always reminds me that, you know, nobody else can get get into it. And there was a breach, by the way. I didn't I didn't pay attention to it, but it, it involved a way of bypassing that with the iPad cover. Did you see that, Leo?
0: Yeah, it was pretty funny. Yeah, it's um, it, 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 what it. What it does is it will uh, it's the smart cover. I don't have an iPad in front of me, so I can't show you. But, right. uh, so what you do is you lock your, uh, your iPad, with, and have, which has a smart cover on it, and yep. you can trick it um, by using the smart cover to put it to sleep and open and then opening it up again. It will go to whatever program is open. Now, if you're in your desktop, uh, they won't be able to run any program. You'll just be able to see okay. what was the desktop. However, if, if you were in email or you were on your browser, you, they have full access to that one app. So whatever app was running when you locked it, that's what they'd have access to.
1: Interesting. And if you try to change apps, you can't. Oh, okay. Interesting. You can't. So you only can, so it's kind of like there's,
0: it's still somewhat secure, but, but not so, fully secure. So they'll, obviously Apple will fix it here in oh, the yeah. next update yeah. and so forth. And by the way, you don't have to have a smart cover as, uh, as uh, Zef88 is pointing out in our chat is room. Is a magnet? Any magnet. Uh, we'll do it. Or if you're a bad guy, just
1: carry a smart cover in your back pocket. Speaking of <laughs> which, I did I did tweet something this week that'll still be up near the top of my queue for any iPad One owners who are missing their multitasking um, uh, gestures, which were removed even in developer mode oh, really? when we updated to iOS five. Oh. Many. Many people who have the original iPad 1 did use the developer mode in order to enable multitasking gestures. It's very nice. I like you can squeeze it in order to go back to home. You can lift in order to get to your, you know, which is the equivalent of of double tapping the home button. And also then just go, you know, swipe sideways in order to change apps. Um, Someone developed a non-jailbreak way of re-enabling multi-chat, multitasking gestures for the iPad 1. And if, so if you go to twitter.com S-G-G-R-C and right near the top of my feed, you will find that. I put, and I, I tweeted a link and a whole bunch of people sent back responses saying, yay, this is yeah. fantastic because they, you know, they were really happy to have it. So it's a, you don't have to jailbreak your iPad to do it. It's something that the guy figured out how to do to get those back for original iPad owners. Yay. Yeah. Yay. Fabio- and back to our regularly scheduled program. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Fabio Esquivel, whose name I adore, in uh, Costa Rica. He's in Catargo, Costa Rica, asks Should I be scared of TLS 1? After listening to your podcast about the SSL version 3, TLS version 1, and TLS version 1.1 1. 1, vulnerabilities, I ran to disable Windows support of these protocols. It's in Control Panel, Internet Options, Advanced Security Items. I only left TLS version 1.2 checked and so felt safe. Days later, my iTunes 10.5 started to fail. I could no longer log into my iTunes store using an Apple ID, so I couldn't download updates for my iPhone. I didn't think disabling TLS one and 1.1 would affect iTunes, so I ran some diagnostics. And there I could see some connectivity issues. The detailed diagnostics showed that iTunes could no longer establish a secure connection to the App Store. So guess, I guess I was wrong. I, I went again to Internet Options, enabled TLS version 1.1, restarted iTunes. Still no luck. Then enabled TLS version 1.0, restarted iTunes, and it worked. And app downloading worked just fine on the iPhone, so I guess iOS 5 is using uh, TLS version 1.0 internally. Should I be worried about 1.0 vulnerabilities? Should I, Should someone cry at Apple's doors to oblige them to update TLS to at least version 1.2? What's
1: going on? Did you look into this? That's interesting. Yes. Um, yeah. So on, on Windows, which is what he's talking about, there is a, an, a scrolling option box. You can scroll all the way down near the bottom, and there it lists T, uh, SSL version 2.0, SSL version 3.0, TLS versions 1.0, 1.1, and 1.2. Now, even my brand-new Windows 7 has, of those five options, only SSL version 3.0 and 1.0 are enabled. So it is supporting the other ones, but they're disabled. Now, what would be interesting would be to see whether enabling 1.1 and 1.2 would cause problems that is in theory as we've discussed the way ssl functions and of course that applies to tls same thing the the client offers a suite of supported security ciphers literally a suite a cipher suite of to the server and the server should have a prioritized list of from like the most secure that it would and that it knows down to the least secure so it compares the client's list of of options to its list and selects the most secure so what would be nice and what i think should happen is if you enable 1.1 and 1.2 then those servers you were connecting to that were aware of 1.1 and 1.2 would preferentially choose those, and you'd have the most secure connection possible. But if you were connecting to a server that didn't know about 1.1 and 1.2, it would choose 1.0, which is as the best that it knows. Now, that's the way things should work, and as far as I know, they do. When, when this was all happening, that is when, when this is relative to the beast, B-E-A-S-T, and this vulnerability that was found in the block cipher, the so-called CBC, cipher block chaining, that is used preferentially by SSL and TLS, this, that was where the problem was. So, first of all, we should all just step back and take a breath. Um, I'm really glad this research was done. And it's putting pressure on organizations like Apple to increase the, the level of protocol support at their servers. So I don't think we need to cry to them. I imagine, I mean, you could complain, but I imagine they understand and they're probably in their own time moving in that direction. But this is also a theoretical attack. I mean, it, over the course of, some period of time by breaching the same origin policy in the browser using a JavaScript, a Java virtual machine hack, which has since been patched, and you would still need to be able to breach same origin policy in order to pull this off. Then it was possible for them to, through a, a lot of number crunching, to successively decrypt bytes of, a, of a cookie which gave them access to an existing session. So, I mean, this is, it's, it's can be done. I imagine maybe we'll see at some point some, some packaged schemes for doing it. People are scrambling around trying to lock down browsers and prevent this from going from, from happening. But it's, it's the kind of problem that's, that's ultimately going to be fixed. However, that said, There actually is something that server administrators could do if they were concerned. And that is the older non-cypher block chaining cypher, meaning RC4, is absolutely strong and useful and bulletproof and doesn't succumb to this problem at all. And so... There are, it is possible on the server side for administrators to simply disable the cipher block chaining protocol options and fall back to RC4, which everybody supports. so you know if this were a much bigger problem, if it were a, more of a concern, then I would say maybe that ought to be recommended um, policy until we get more widespread support of of one point two version that doesn't have that doesn't suffer from this problem, because they're not carrying the initialization vector from the end of the prior block into the beginning of the next one that's what that's a little tiny mistake they made that there that has been fixed, you know years ago, but no one has gotten around to updating their protocols because it just didn't seem like a big problem so anyway. I would say you should not be scared, Fabio. <laughs> you you might turn on 1.1 and 1.2. That way, your system is offering the this more secure protocols, and it will it will use them if they're available, and it'll fall back to to 1.0 if they're not available. But don't sweat it. i my sense is the browsers are going to get this locked down, and we and the good news is we'll be moving forward with a more secure protocol as a consequence right. of these researchers who, who showed everyone, whoops, there is a way to take advantage of this problem that we've known about for, since 2004.
0: Briefly, before we uh, get to our next question, just a reminder, I, t- I almost don't even need to spend much time on this. If you're not a Netflix user, you might want to check out netflix.com uh, slash twit. It is a way to put Netflix on your iPad, your iPhone, your um Android phone now, which is awesome. Um, your uh, iPad, it's a great way to watch. Of course, on your Blu-ray player, your Xbox. People are saying, oh, Netflix, who? You know, they raise the price. Forget it. $7.99 a month. This is, this is a great deal. I don't think there's a better deal out there for unlimited entertainment. I watch it every night. Net- Netflix.com slash twit. Try it free for 30 days. And uh, tell if you already remember, tell your friends. Great stuff. Netflix.com.
1: Slash Twit. All right, our last, are you ready? Our last question. And Uh, Netflix reversed themselves, didn't they? Didn't they? They were going to
0: separate the DVD business out, yeah. Yeah. And they decided not to. Uh, Quickster, they were going to call it. Um, I don't know. You know, Netflix is struggling a little bit because. uh, they lost a bunch of subscribers. Mostly it's a stock thing. The stock market's lost faith in them. I mm. think they're great. I use them all the time. And I will never, yeah. you know, maybe you want to quit your uh, your DVD subscription. But I like that too, because I like having a disc. But I just think the streaming is such a good deal. I, Yeah. You, that's To me, that's the way to do it. Um, Miami Andy, who lives in Troy, New York. He probably just wishes he were in Miami. Wants to comment on iPhone keyboard vibrations. I was attending CCS this past week and heard Georgia Tech people present their paper about the iPhone detecting typing via the vibrations it produced. We, we talked about this last week because, it, because yep. there's an accelerometer in there and you yep. can actually detect the vibrations on the table. During the Q&A that followed, it was pointed out when they were probed for more detail that this was only under some very specific circumstances. First, the iPhone was always on the left side of the keyboard in the same spot. Second, they made sure to use a wood desk. Those resonate the best, of course. When they tried it with another desk or on a concrete floor, it just didn't work. Third, they tried it in an isolated environment. This was pointed out to be an issue since vibrations from other items like desk fans or maybe even some speakers would ruin the results. It was an interesting paper, but I think the flaws in its proof should be pointed out so people aren't suddenly paranoid about leaving uh, their phones on the desk. Please don't ever stop the podcasts. It's not their phones you got to worry about. But if you see a stray iPhone to the left of your keyboard and you're on a wooden table and there's no other vibrations in the room, be afraid. Be very afraid. And people are saying,
1: shh, he's typing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's typing. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, so this was a very good point. I, want, uh, I brought it up because I thought it was cool. fun and yeah. clever. Yeah. And, and it perfectly demonstrates this whole class of crypto concerns known as side channel attacks where you you're without intending to you're leaking information through a an entirely unrelated vector right. that you know you you, you wouldn't you, you wouldn't anticipate for example we've seen and, and we're now aware of this for example modern ciphers and hashes are they get dings against them in their competitions if the amount of power the processor consumes is a function of the keying material. So, or if the length of time it takes, newer hashes and ciphers are time invariant, meaning that it always takes them the same amount of time to do their work independent of what your key is and what the data is. So those are examples of I mean these are things we've seen attacked before. Timing attacks are real. They have been used to crack ciphers and and to and and to um to perform de- decryption. So um so anyway, this was just another, you know, wacky cool um example of a side channel attack and but i did want to as you know as miami andy says let's not get ourselves carried away it's not like you know our our phone is spying on us and actually able to determine what we're typing by by listening
0: (laughs) steve as always you debunk you explain you teach we learn and i love doing this show we do it every wednesday 11 a.m pacific 2 p.m eastern 1800 utc at uh, twit.tv you can watch live but if you don't don't worry Steve makes copies available on his fine site, grc.com. Not only 64 kilobit audio, but 16 kilobit audio for the bandwidth impaired. That's the smallest file size anybody offers on any show on this network. He also does transcriptions, which is just great, so you can read along uh, as you listen. If you want video, we have that, as well as all the audio at twit.tv as well. And uh, next week, what are we talking about?
1: Not sure. We'll either continue with uh, talking about some of the... Um, inner workings of TCP, the protocol, or if something comes up in the meantime, there are a couple other things I had wanted to research. So I may, may take us off that for a minute, uh, uh, tackle something else interesting and then come back. I expect that next week I will be announcing the completion of off the grid. Really? I believe it's finished. Um, I came, I came so close yesterday to posting it for the news group folks to pound on, There is a little fi- different Firefox behavior. If anyone was curious, you could. I, I did post a PNG image of the grid customizing UI. If you go to grc.com/misc/files/mi_s_c_f_i_l_e_s/slash/grid_customization.png, you will see uh, just a snapshot I took. A couple of days ago, to show the folks who are in the news group and waiting for me to give them something to pound on, you can change the font, the size, the horizontal and vertical um, uh, padding for the characters. You can turn off the upper and lower case randomization, change um, the run length of that, even the coloration of the various aspects of the grid. So it's got all kinds of bells and whistles, and it's working. I'm just, I'm very close to having it finished. So I suspect next week, uh, many listeners have been saying when, when, when. So um, I hope i hope it'll be next week. Awesome. And we'll certainly have a good podcast in addition. No matter what. Yep. Guarantee
0: you that. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for joining us, everybody. And we'll see. And uh, for those who are wondering, I just thought I'd wear a security outfit during security now. That's all. <laughs> Somebody said, is he moonlighting? Yeah. You know, Gotta make a little money on the side. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Security Now.